Speed up with podcast speed up. Rationally Speaking is a presentation of New York City Skeptics, dedicated to promoting critical thinking, skeptical inquiry, and science education. For more information, please visit us at nycskeptics.org. Welcome to Rationally Speaking, the podcast where we explore the borderlands between reason and nonsense. I am your host, Massimo Piliucci, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Julia Galef. Julia, what are we going to talk about today? Well, Massimo, today we are here with a live audience in New York City at University Settlement on the Lower East Side. Everyone want to say hi? <laughs> Woo! <laughs> Hello to you, too. It definitely is. This wasn't taped, right? Okay. <laughs> yeah, we had to pay extra for the strong applause track on, on, right. <laughs> on iTunes. Um, so uh, today we're going to be talking about Massimo's latest book, which has just come out. It's called Answers for Aristotle, How Science and Philosophy Can Lead Us to a More Meaningful Life. Um, so I'm, I'm very excited about this, uh, because if, I, if you had asked me to summarize the like, dominant thread of all of the Rationally Speaking podcasts that Massimo and I have been recording for the last, what's it been, two and a half years now? Two and a half two years, and yeah. Half years. 70 episodes or something like that. Wow, yeah. So, you know, there are a lot of things that I could say, like common threads that weave in and out of our various episodes, but I think probably the top contender for like a dominant theme, um, at least from Massimo's end of the podcast, would be that you need both science and philosophy combined in you know, an intelligent way to answer the toughest questions about life, the universe, and everything. So when I saw the subtitle of his latest book, I, I was like, oh, wow, it's like, it's like our podcast, but in concentrated, you know, direct, straightforward form. So I, I like to think that this book was, was really inspired by all of your conversations with me. That content definitely was. Uh, and I noticed that I was acknowledged at, on the last page, right. too, which Absolutely. was delightful. You should have really put that at the front, though. So that as I was reading the book, I, I would have this warm, positive aspect. Positive. Oh, I see. That's too late. Yeah. That's the fault of the editor. Um, the, certainly, you're right. The, the content of the book does reflect a lot of, of the sort of the topics that we have had conversations uh, over for the last two and a half years. However, the basic idea actually came out essentially out of a joke. Out of a joke. Uh, yeah. So a few years ago, when I, before moving to City, moving to City University um, in New York, I was at Stony Brook University, and I gave a sort of a very informal talk, like the, like the kind of things you give in the evening with graduate students and colleagues over a beer. Mm -hmm. And it was about, in fact, the science and philosophy of the good life. And it was inspired by, it was in, organized around Monty Python's songs. And, and, and movie clips, particularly, of course, The Meaning of Life. And one of my postdocs um, at the time, Oliver Bosdorf, who is now a professor of ecology in, in Germany, said, you know, you really should write a book about this thing. And I said, no, I shouldn't. And then I thought about it, and I said, actually, I, I probably should. And that's how it came out. I mean, the outline, the original outline, actually, which, of course, got modified dramatically by the, the, the editor before we actually got to the book, pretty much reflected the outline of the talk. So, yeah, it came out of a... Eh, you should do this. So, so uh, we, should, we should give our listeners a, a sense of what it looks like to use science and philosophy to tackle difficult questions, in case they haven't been tuning in for the last two and a half years. So I thought uh, maybe we should start with, um, given that it is late October and we have an election coming up, we should start with politics, which uh, makes <laughs> sure. up some of the uh, particularly interesting chapters in the book. Massimo, 
how, how would you use science and philosophy to help us understand how we should think about politics? Yeah, so that's a good example, not only because it's, it's topical, obviously, given, given the time frame, but uh, because it is, in fact, one of the best areas where you can prof uh, uh, proficiently com combine philosophy and, and science. So the science there is, of course, social science, political science, sociology, and so on and so forth. So you, wanna, you want to have data, you know, empirical evidence about, let's say, uh, the functioning of different political systems, the, the functioning of different ways of doing elections. There's, you know, uh, a lot of people uh, tend to think that uh, the way they grew up voting is the way people vote, but as a matter of a fact, there's a lot of variation across the world in, which, in the way in which people vote. Um, a lot of people tend to think that the system, you know, in this particular case, in the United States, the two-party system is sort of a natural way of doing things, but that's not also not true, of course. There's all sorts of variation around. And we have data. You know, we have decades and decades of experiments in different parts of the world uh, which social scientists and political scientists have analyzed. And, uh, for instance, there is a, a really interesting paper that is quoted in the, in the book that looks at the efficiency uh, of different types of voting systems. And it turns out that the best voting system is something that, deal, that is a combination of, of um, uh, ranking candidates, basically. Uh, and so instead of voting for one person or another, you actually give a rank. You have your first preference, a second preference, third, third preference. And then it becomes, the, and on a sec, if, it, if uh, people need a second round, then those preferences become weighted. Uh, and uh, there's criteria according to which you can, you know, if you want to maximize certain things, the social scientists can tell you, yeah, that actually is the best way. For instance, uh, you want to avoid, um, you know, runoff elections. You want to avoid uh, voting for the worst candidate. You're not voting for a third candidate because you're afraid of losing your vote, uh, the, the meaning of your vote, that sort of stuff. Uh, it also turns out, incidentally, that historically people had tried these things, and actually the, the Roman Senate uh, was uh, held elections in a similar way, mm. using a very similar system. So that's, that's what you can learn from the science perspective. From the philosophy perspective, of course, there is an entire field there in political philosophy where people have been thinking and, and debating about what, uh, what is the meaning of justice, what is the best way to organize a state uh, according to what criteria. Now, this goes back all the way to uh, Plato's Republic, of course, which was, in fact, a, uh, in part, a treaty on how to um, organize the best state. I'm pretty sure we wouldn't want to do things like Plato suggested. But like none well, it was a very stratified, you know, the, the, the philosophers, of course, were in charge. And I agree with that. What a great question. <laughs> it's obviously the best option. Uh, but it was a very sort of stratified kind of society where each one had, you know, each class of people had their own, their own uh, roles. And it was pretty, pretty rigid. Although it had some advantages compared to most contemporary society at the time. For instance, Plato saw no reason why men and women should be doing different things. And if, if the women were good at doing philosophy or doing whatever it is or being warriors, then they, that's what they should do. Uh, nonetheless, it wouldn't translate very well with sort of democratic Western type of societies. But it was, that was the beginning. And then from there, you got 2,400 years of, of thinking about these kind of things, uh, culminating, I think, in uh, books like Unjustice by um, uh, John Rawls, which is another classic of moral philosophy in the 20th century. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the other threads running through this book is the degree, sheer degree to which things that we're not aware of can be influencing our, our most fundamental judgments about what we prefer or what's motivating us or, or what our moral values are. And, uh, and so some of, some of my favorite um, examples of this come from the politics. Actually, they're all throughout the book, but there's some great examples of this in the, in the politics chapter. Um, what, what kinds of things would you 
um, warn people about that might be influencing their political decision making, other than their you know conscious reasoned choices about right. what the best outcomes are going to be right. caused by. So there we're, we're getting into the area of uh, uh, cognitive biases. So one of the things that Aristotle did get wrong um, uh, was this idea that human beings are the rational animal. Uh, modern research in cognitive psychology clearly shows that we're much better described as the rationalizing animal. We, we, we're very good at coming up with all sorts of reasons why we're right to begin with. And, Such a funny word, rationalizing. Yeah. It doesn't mean making rational. It means coming right. up with the, an irrational The opposite, exactly. Right. It would be like using the word truthizing for telling a lie. That's right. Now, <laughs> yes, truthizing for telling a lie. So now what cognitive psychologists have discovered uh, over the last several years is that human beings are prone to all sorts of you know, confirmation biases, all sorts of you know, ways of, of um, uh, misinterpreting or reinterpreting uh, information about the world to sort of fit their own, uh, their own agenda or their own preconceived ideas. And um, on the one hand, you might, you might think that you know, being aware of that, it's, it's at least the first step. If you know that you're prone to, use, to misuse your reasoning abilities in a certain way, that's certainly the first step, uh, although certainly not the only one, to, to improve things. But one of the nice things, actually, that I found, again, in, term, in terms of the connection between science and philosophy, is that if you look at the major cognitive biases that uh, uh, the psychologists have discovered, cognitive scientists have discovered, they actually match pretty well with the uh, logical fallacies that philosophers have been talking about the warning uh, people for literally millennia. And so, for instance, uh, the, um, the idea that a, a, lot of, a lot of people have this tendency to go from observing uh, uh, two events following each other in time to drawing a causal connection between those two events. Right? So uh, this is the basis of a lot of pseudoscientific belief, for instance. Uh, you know, I vaccinate my child, and then a year later, the child develops uh, um, autism, and therefore, the vaccination must have caused the autism. Right? So that's, that sort of uh, causal thinking, it's actually not warranted by that sort of evidence. It may be that there was a causal connection, but it may not be. I mean, after all, there is a perfect correlation, for instance, between my age and the expansion of the universe, but I'm not causing the expansion of the universe. Right? Uh, there is a common cause, which is the passing of time uh, that is, that is uh, affecting both. Now, uh, that kind of mistake is, of course, well described in, in logic as one of the informal fallacies. This is the post hoc ergo propter hoc fallacy, which is a fancy Latin for after that, therefore because of that. And uh, one of the things that I find interesting about this connection between uh, cognitive biases on the one hand and logical fallacies on the other is that I've seen a lot of social uh, scientists recently being very skeptical of uh, philosophy and, and logic because they say, look, we're, we're showing that people are actually not logical. They're not, you know, they're not rational and all that. To me, that means that it's even more important to get training in critical thinking and awareness of logical fallacies because all it, what it shows is that it doesn't come natural to human beings, just like, let's say, probabilistic thinking doesn't come natural to human beings. I mean, uh, the, the, the gambler's fallacies and things like that, the, the reason why casinos make so much money is because we have all sorts of bad ideas, intuitive ideas about how probability works. Uh, but that doesn't mean that you cannot take a course in probability and start learning about it and, and, and figure out that it's a bad idea to bet against the, the house of a casino on a regular basis. Occasionally you get lucky, but if you do it on the long run, you're guaranteed to lose. And once you know that, presumably, unless you're self-destructing, <laughs> you're not going to do that sort of thing. So I think that actually this discovery of cognitive biases and, and um, 
and uh, these input from the social sciences are very important, but the lesson to draw is exactly the opposite that some people actually do draw from it. It is the idea that actually then that means you need even more training because it doesn't come uh, rational, so uh, natural. So instead of, of being a rational animal, we are rationalizing one, but we can in fact improve our degree of rationality by doing this, these, these sort of things. Mm -hmm. There are several great examples of how the way a question is framed can completely change your, right. uh, your answer to the question. So in the case of politics, uh, you described how people were asked, did Bill Clinton reduce the deficit? And, uh, and then another group of people were asked, did the, did the deficit go down? And when Bill Clinton was asked, uh, when Bill Clinton was mentioned, um, people with Republican leanings were much more likely to say that no, the deficit did not go down. Um, because it cannot, right? And, and the Democratic <laughs> president, it has to go down, but uh, go up. But no, that's, that was turned out to be not the case. Right. And, and so, I, I mean, I wonder if you have any thoughts for how I mean, the, the, I'm interested in how science and philosophy can help us think about uh, uh, society as a whole, but I'm particularly interested in how an individual's understanding of science and philosophy can help that individual figure out you know, what her values really are and, and whether her actions have been influenced by things that she doesn't want to be influencing her actions. Yeah. And so I, I've been personally particularly interested in this question of how the judgments that I think I'm making um, can can be completely influenced by the way that I pose the question to myself. Yeah, no, that's that's a good point, and uh, I think that one of the best answers actually there comes comes from interestingly the the philosophy and and uh, sociology of science, mm -hmm. because if you think about it, you know, scientists themselves will like to to believe, and and they they might even claim um, uh, occasionally that they're trained in being objective, they're trained in evaluating dispassionately the data, right? They, they, they train the training coming up with rigorous analysis and all that sort of stuff. Well, if you believe that, I have a large bridge down in Brooklyn that I can sell you for very cheap. I've been a scientist. That's not at all the way it works. Most scientists are highly rationalized rationalizing individuals because they're very smart so they come up with all sorts of interesting ways to rationalize their conclusions and if you let them go they'll go in all sorts of bizarre directions um, what then then you can say so the, in other words they're not different from any other human being they're interested in the same things that other human beings are interested in you know money fame and sex not necessarily in that order and so the question is well, how come that science works so well if, if it's true that, you, that the scientists, individual human beings, individual scientists are not particularly objective, they're not particularly uh, rigorous about what they do in terms of sort of uh, uh, getting out of biases, of which, by the way, most of the time they're not even aware, uh, then how come that the outcome is actually such a powerful, you know, progressive enterprise discovering things about the, the way the world works? And the answer has been provided by people like Helen Longino, who is uh, cited in the book in the, in the chapter about how do we know things. And according to Longino, the crucial part there is that science is a social activity. You don't, you know, this idea that scientists work in their own laboratory at night and figuring out things about the world on their own, it's false. If ever was the case, that was the case 300 years ago, perhaps, but certainly not today. Today, science is a highly social integrated enterprise, which means that the biases of a single individual scientist are going to be countered by the biases of a bunch of other scientists. And what comes out of that continuous back and forth between different biases is something that it sort of emerges at a societal level, at the, group, at the level of the group of scientists. That, by the way, becomes a, a very powerful argument for increasing diversity within the scientific community. 
because, for instance, there are very good ex examples from the history of science where scientists have come up with ideas that were clearly racist or uh, misogynist. And then the counter to that is to include minorities as much as possible and women as much as possible in science because that, that way, the next time that some bozos come up with this idea that women clearly are inferior because their brain are smaller, there's going to be a bunch of women in the audience, you know, neurobiologists, cognitive scientists, and say, what? Are you coming up with that? And here's the data and here's the reason why you're wrong. If that works in science, there's no reason why that couldn't work in society at large. That is, it's important for the individual to recognize, you know, the existence of cognitive biases, to learn about, uh, you know, critical thinking and the basic tools of logic and that sort of stuff. But it's also important for that individual to engage in as wide a conversation, as, as diverse a conversa conversation as possible with other individuals, because that's the way your ideas get tested. That's how you put something out there and somebody says, no, wait a minute. For instance, I, I can just give you an example from just uh, uh, the other night. I was at home and waiting for friends to, to come over back from, from the theater, and I log, uh, uh, logged into my Google Plus account, and I figured out that there were s several people, one of whom is actually sitting here in the audience, uh, who engaged in this conversation about a post that I, that I, that I put out concerning the, um, the fact that the, the uh, U.S. government does not have an independent, anymore an independent manned space program. It's, we're deputizing now that to private companies. And it was a really interesting thing because the, some of the, the people that, that uh, participated in the conversation clearly had different ideas from the reason I put up the post to begin with. And, in, and they were challenging me on, well, what about this? What about these other examples? What about that? Now, by the end of the conversation, I was much more careful about putting out what I thought was, was a certain, you know, my opinion, because it was clear that, yeah, that was a good objection, and no, that, does, that doesn't work. I still think this is my basic point was correct, but now I had to come up with better examples because, in fact, my initial example had been, uh, you know, demolished pretty, pretty easily. So that is the kind of thing that I think if one does, does regularly and honestly, actually does improve um, things quite a bit better than talking to yourself because you would always agree um, in front of the mirror. Uh, there's this exercise that I sometimes recommend to people who want practice, uh, like considering opposing viewpoints, especially in emotionally charged situations and, and who want, uh, like, practice saying that they were wrong publicly uh, when, you know, when warranted. Um, and that's to, to post their opinions that they suspect will not be popular on Facebook and, and to post them in, you know, as, as not mean or belligerent, but as, uh, like, confrontational way as possible uh, to encourage people to disagree with them. Um, and then they can, you know, change their mind if, if given good arguments publicly on Facebook. Um, that's which, right. Yeah, I've done, I do sometimes. Score, I changed easy. my mind. No, yeah. that's right. Well, another similar, similar technique that it's actually used in, and uh, in, in it's pedagogically well, well established is uh, when you're teaching a class with students, especially a philosophy class, uh, just have students assign two different or three different uh, positions to students at random and then ask them to defend those positions. You know, regardless of whether they agree with or with that position or not, and as it turns out, there's pretty pretty good evidence that shows that that is one way people a change their mind sometimes, or if they don't change their mind, they have come up with a much better understanding of the opponent's position because they found themselves in a situation of having to defend mm. that. You know, let's say you are opposed to the, to the death penalty, and all of a sudden the the assignment is okay, trying to come up with the best arguments in favor of death penalty. Mm -hmm. Oh well, so the first the first reaction typically is is negative. It's is people tend to not want to do that. 
because there is a sort of um, an emotional dissonance between what you believe at a, at a sort of a, a gut level and what you're asked to defend formally. I think it's good training for being a lawyer, by mm-hmm. the way. But um, the other, the, 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 the thing actually works. Uh, people do learn about other people's positions and defend, um, uh, or and sometimes change their mind about stuff because they all of a sudden were forced to take a different perspective, a different point of view. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and even even just being aware of the reasons of the rationalizing techniques that people uh, use if left to their own devices can help you notice yourself using them too. Um, And you have this great outline of like the seven different ways that people rationalize. I think the context was, again, in politics, people being given uh, evidence, uh, like strong evidence that uh, Iraq had nothing to do with 9-11. And, you know, did they, how did, if they had previously thought that Iraq, uh, Saddam Hussein was behind 9-11, how did they react when given this new evidence? Right. And only like 2% of people actually changed their minds right. in, in response to that. Yeah. It was really small. And then the other techniques were things like, well, uh, you know, logic doesn't matter anyway. <laughs> or um, well, I, did, I never said that. Yeah, I never <laughs> said that. I had other reasons for, for not liking Saddam Hussein. I, I never thought he was behind 9-11. Right. Um, or if the president said so, then he must have good reasons. So right. these, these, you know, people that don't buy into conspiracy theories and yet they they're willing to uh, let you know to trust the authority just because it goes in their direction. Yeah, that was an interesting study. Uh, it was done. It was a political science study, mm-hmm. and it showed uh, that there is a, num- a battery of, of defenses basically that people uh, uh, put up when you're when they are challenged on factual basis, which shows you how difficult it actually is to convince people to change their mind. Mm-hmm. And if the, the, you're right, the percentage of people that changed their mind, they admitted to be wrong, was small. Uh, but at least it shows you that that is possible. Yeah. Uh, but some of the things were stunning because some of the questions, like the one you were talking about earlier, in, uh, you know, did the, the budget go up or down after under Clinton? Those were not really matters of opinion. I mean, you, you can ask something like, you know, did you feel that the country was going in the right direction under President Clinton? Okay, that's that's a pretty subjective question. You know, depending on how you, what do you mean by feeling, and you know, what aspect of the country? What? But if you're asking a very specific question, did the budget, you know, the deficit go up or down? Well, there is a, a very simple numeric answer to that question. It's factual. Uh, economists on both sides of the spectrum agree. And by the way, it was highly publicized because it was so unusual in public perception that a democratic president could bring down the deficit, then it was highly publicized. So this was the kind of thing that people ought to have known or they were easy to look up. And even so, about 50% of people got it wrong. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's, it's amazing. Yeah? Uh, as Plato put it, ignorance is the root of all evil, if not all, a lot of it. Um, I, I was particularly interested to just very like, briefly return to the framing question I was interested in this spectrum that I started noticing emerging in your book of ways in which our judgment is influenced by things that, that don't feel like conscious uh, reasoning on our part. And so they run the gamut. So on, on one end, you have things like uh, realizing from uh, you know, learning, scientific learning about the world, realizing that, oh, wait, my decisions are all caused by, uh, by chemicals in my brain uh, and by neurons firing. And wait, that's, that, that means I can't have free will because my decisions are all caused by these um, you know, interactions of chemicals in my brain. Uh, that philosophy can, I, I think you made a great case, philosophy can help you recognize that that's not actually, uh, that, that scientific understanding shouldn't actually make you feel like you're any less in control of your decisions um, than right. you did it before. It's merely a description of your decisions being right. made, not a proof that you're not making them. Um, and then at the other end of the spectrum, are things where uh, I think you you should be concerned about the influence that these factors are having on your decisions, like 
the fact that holding a cup of hot coffee or a cold beverage can make you think that the person you're talking to is more friendly or less friendly, or uh, you know, recognizing that. Um, uh, yeah, that one actually is a good one. So, so uh, philosophy has a, has a reputation for not being practical. Here's a practical tip: next time you go out on a date or on a job interview, make sure that hot your beverages. Date, that's right, hot yes. beverages, not cold drinks, because as it turns out, there's pretty good evidence that you are going to judge or you're going to be judged much more positively if the person is holding a hot beverage or whether than if rather than if it's she or he right. is holding a, a cold one. So it's like, yeah, go figure. Now. Right. That doesn't mean, by the way, that we, we, one needs to be uh, uh, careful about these things because these are interesting facts about the human being's response. But that doesn't mean that that's the end of the story, right? I mean, there's, there's a bias. Yes, you can quantify that there is a bias. But that doesn't mean that it's as simple as, oh, I'll give you a cup of coffee and get a job. It doesn't work quite that way. It just means that it, well, there are several factors. Right? It mean, is probabilistic. Like on average, you'll have That's a... right. And it's not necessarily long-term, so you may get off well on the first date with a cup of coffee, but if you're a jerk, your second date is not going to go well, regardless of what you're drinking. As soon as the weather gets cold, you have to like, leave with her to Florida and stay there until it's yeah. warm again. It becomes yeah, complicated. But, so what I was saying is there's, you, you give all these great examples of things that influence our judgment, and they run the gamut from things that, that don't really threaten our, um, our sense of having made those judgments ourselves to things that, that do feel like alien control of our, of our judgments that we don't endorse influencing them. And then there's this really interesting gray area in the middle, like uh, evolutionary biology uh, uh, teaching us that the, the moral intuitions that we have were built into us because they were adaptive for our ancestors, um, right. that you know, we, we feel more uh, inclined to help out people who are genetically related to us because that was ad adaptive for our genes to help them proliferate, um, and also that we feel a moral disgust at, say, asymmetrical faces or at... Things that well, they feel, are disgusting. No, <laughs> or, or things that feel um, just viscerally disgusting to us that we have a built-in tendency to conflate that with right. moral judgment. And so, so to me, the most interesting questions are in that gray area of when do we, when should we choose to override? Right. The, and the, the example, one of the examples you just judgments. brought up, uh, um, is particularly interesting to to discussing morality. Right. So, first of all, let's open a small sort of bracket about evolutionary psychology as people that have heard our podcast before know I am actually I tend to be fairly skeptical of evolutionary psychological explanations of human be modern human behaviors um, but they do make they are plausible often they are pl plausible stories uh, it's, it's unfortunately very difficult to come up with very good evidence empirical evidence that a particular explanation for a modern behavior being traced back to the Pleistocene is actually correct it sounds good and it's possibly, you know, it's, it's plausible, but that doesn't, it shouldn't be taken as established because to do that kind of research is actually very difficult. Unfortunately, human behavior, most human behaviors don't fossilize, and we do not have a lot of other closely related species that we can compare with. The, the two most closely related ones are chimpanzees and bonobos, and they're very different from each other. You know, the chimpanzees are very aggressive and engaging in, in intergroup warfare, essentially. The bonobos just have sex all the time. So it's like, yeah, um, and they're equally distant from us. So it's it's hard, but one can make a reasonable argument that, for instance, uh, instinctive behaviors that are still powerful in modern societies, such as xenophobia, you know, the, the, the fact that you tend automatically to distrust people that don't look like you or people that, are belong, that, are, that belong to outside groups, it's very likely, it's very possible, it's very plausible that uh, they did evolve because, in fact, there was a long period in, the, in human history where pretty much anybody from the outside was not going to be a friendly 
uh, thing. It, it, it was going to be a, 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 prob a problem. Now, the question there is, therefore, is, well, so that's the natural, if that's the natural way in which human beings respond to outsiders as, uh, from a social perspective, uh, so that we have this very strong feeling, that very strong reaction, should we or should we not override that, right? Now, in most Western societies, I think we would agree that, yes, we should, that there is no, no rational way why we should be treating, we should automatically be distrustful of people that don't look like us, especially in a multicultural society when these people are not outsiders, they're actually insiders, right? Or a multi-ethnic ethnic society. So there is one area where the biology tells you something about where your sense of morality comes from, where, why did you develop these very strong reactions about things that you've, you've perceived like threats or not, or that you perceive like they're, they're right, the, thing, the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do. But at the same time, your reason has to come in, your, your understanding of reflecting on those feelings has to come in and say, yeah, but wait a minute, just because I automatically feel that way, it's not actually right to feel that way. There is an interesting experience, uh, experiment in the book that, uh, that deals directly with racism, for instance. So it turns out you can measure the, um, the inclination toward racism subliminally. You, you can, you know, without the, the individual's knowledge, because you can expose uh, people to certain cues that have to do with racial perceptions, and then you can measure the skin conductance or things like that, or the level of stress uh, of the individual, and you can tell how the individual is reacting, regardless of what he says about what he's, why he's reacting one way or the other. And so they, they did the experiment with a number of people, some of whom were very consciously uh, considered themselves non-racists and other people who on the other hand apparently had not thought too, too carefully about this, this kind of thing. When the first group of people was faced with evidence that look my friend, you think you're not racist but in fact I just showed you a picture of a black man and your, your adrenaline level went up through the roof what do you make of that? And the interesting thing is they were ashamed they said, that is not what I, what I want to do. This is not who I am. So I'm going to be more, even more careful about controlling that sort of stuff. The second group, care not. Said, oh, yeah, that's the natural reaction because I do think they're, you know, these people are, in fact, very dangerous and I better stay away from them. So that is an, an interesting example where you can see that there is a biological, psychological reaction to certain situations, but the brain, you know, the reflective part of the brain can override and say, no, and this is not the right thing to do, so we stop and you know, slow down. Let's, let's think about this. So in the earlier chapters of the book, you talk about moral judgments and how we reach different, very different moral judgments depending on which sort of modules in our brain get activated, and it's, it's often not even under our control, or, or we're not the ones who decide which modules get activated. Um, so and I'll just I'll briefly describe the, the trolley sure. problem. Um, people, this is a, a common thought experiment philosophers have posed to people. Um, they ask, okay, if you uh, if there was a train that was going to hit five children sitting on the tracks and you could divert it to another track where it would hit one person sitting on the tracks, would you divert it? And, and most people say yes, uh, better for one person to die than for five people to die. But then the next iteration of the question is, um, what if the, you know, the train's heading towards the five children on the tracks as before, but, but this time the only way you can stop the train is you're standing on a bridge above the tracks and there's a very large man next to you and you can choose if you, if you want to push him over the bridge onto the tracks where he will land and, and his sheer bulk will stop the train so it's, it's the it's same. It's funny that in early version of that, the second uh, type of experiment, the, the man was described as a very fat man, and now it's, it's a very large man. I, <laughs> which is, you know, it's, it's interesting. He's and big bones. That's right, big he's bones. big bones, exactly. Yeah. Um, 
so, so even though most people will divert the train, very few people are willing to actually push a large big bone man onto the tracks. <laughs> um, and there's various interpretations for why we have so much more moral uh, disgust at the idea of doing that, even though the actual moral, uh, the actual life calculus comes out the same. Um, it's, it's more visceral, it's more, like, feels like more of a direct uh, harm that we're causing. Um, we have these sort of built-in rules, uh, both evolutionarily and from society, against, uh, like, physically causing someone harm. Um, and so, so, so the unwillingness to push the large man onto the tracks is uh, kind of a, a, what's called a deontological intuition. You're following a rule that says you don't, do active, you don't actively cause harm to an innocent person, um, even though the, uh, you're, you're ultimately deciding to have five people die instead of one person die. And the alternate way of answering the question, if you are willing to push the large man onto the tracks, is a utilitarian uh, approach to ethics in which you look at what the consequences would be and you pick the action which causes the consequences which are best overall. So, you know, pushing the large man is, yes, it's violating this rule, but it has the best consequences because one person dies instead of five. And there are ways to influence which mode of thinking, which mode of moral reasoning people uh, use by things seemingly as trivial as what font do you use when you write the question. Right. <laughs> so more uh, utilitarian thinking is more of an analytical way to think as opposed to an intuitive way to think. And so you can bump people into analytical mode by using a hard-to-read font. Somehow the act of trying to decipher a hard-to-read font makes you right. more inclined to think analytically. So you're more likely to push the fat man onto the track. Oh, right. my bad. And so, right, so, so that, that was all along lead up to saying it's not, as you like really eloquently articulated in the book, it's not clear that that you know, knowing this about ourselves, that we have these two different modes of reasoning and can use one versus the other depending on influences, knowing that it, it, there's no obvious answer of like, oh, well, now that we know this, we can clearly see that this is the wrong way to reason. Right. And you know, now that we recognize that, we can make sure we reason this other way. But there is an interesting, I mean, what I take out of the trolley experiments, when they're done, this, this has been done also in collaboration by philosophers. The trolley experiment originally was a philosophical thought experiment. Philosophers are very good at thought experiments because they don't cost anything. And so they don't require grants and all that sort of stuff. But recently that actually, you know, Connie, kind of the scientists have gotten together with philosophers and sort of set up um, a whole way of, of, of doing these when people are being scanned, people's brains are being scanned, so that we actually know uh, quite a bit about what's going on in, literally inside people's heads when they make those decisions. And again, this is another interesting example where I think the science and the philosophy sort of inform each other. It's not that the science is going to solve the philosophical question. The science isn't going to tell you, you know, well, this is really what you should do. Um, but what it is going to tell you is how your brain works, and therefore, if you think that this is what you should do, you need to take into account the way your brain works and it's inclined to uh, to, to think before you can actually correct it if you decided that, that that's not the way to go. For instance, uh, in the case that, um, that Julia set up, um, you know, the contrast between the two cases, as it turns out, you can show that uh, people's frontal uh, lobes, frontal cortex, is involved typically in the first version of the dilemma, the one where you pull the lever, and though, which means that your, your rational thinking capacities are engaged in, in, this, in that case. You're looking at the thing dispassionately. But in the second case, where you push the, the big boned guy um, off the bridge, turns out that all of a sudden your amygdala are ha very actively involved. The amygdala are the area of the brain where th that are very... Um, uh, they're connected with emotional responses, right? So it, you can actually show that, yes, people are switching from one mode of thinking to another because they are, in fact, engaging their emotional responses. Now, you, can, you still have to ask the question, you know, well, okay, but what is the right thing to do? 
right? Now, once you show people what they're doing and why they're doing it, then you can ask them, well, how do you square these two things? You know, what kind of assumptions, you know, all of this is often done by people without actual explicit reasoning. It's not that people think about it and say, yeah, I'm a utilitarian, therefore I should push the guy. Or no, I'm a deontologist, therefore I shouldn't. Most people don't even know what those categories actually mean. But what, it, what you can do is you can do the thought experiment, you can do the brain scanning, and then you can say, okay, as it turns out, there are these different ways of thinking about ethics. And you have been switching between two of those when you change your mind between those two things. Now think about it. What do you actually want to, if I allow you the time to reflect on these things, what, what do you actually think is the best way to go about it and why? And I'm not suggesting there is an answer uh, to it, but there, is a way of, there are ways of thinking about it that are often implicit. And it's always a good idea when we, are, we run into trouble to move from an implicit uh, way of thinking, sort of an intuition, intuitional uh, way of thinking, which can be very useful in, in, a, in a pinch, to a more explicit, more reflective way of thinking and say, ah, right, there is in fact a contradiction here. Uh, I, I can't consistently do one or the other, or I have to resolve that contradiction in another way. By the way, the, the brain scans also show that the minority of pe- there's a very tiny minority of people who actually answer yes to both questions. They, they pull the lever and throw the guy. Those Are there bra- any people who wouldn't pull the lever but would push the guy? That's a good question. <laughs> I don't think so. But um, that's a good question. I don't have the data. I don't think so. But there is a small number, a fairly tiny component number of people who actually do both. And it turns out that those people have brain scans that are typical of sociopathic behavior. And it's really amazing. So it's like, you know, they're completely disengaged with their emotional responses. A lot of those people are found on Wall Street, by the way. (laughs) This is a fact. I'm not just making this as a joke. Actually, people have studied the uh, sociological profiles of uh, highly regarded CEOs on Wall Street, and the degree of sociopathy is very high, which you might imagine, you know, that's an interesting, another one, as Julia knows, another one of my interests, especially when I was uh, a practicing scientist, was the the, the idea of nature-nurture interactions, gene and environment and shaping people's behavior. And as it turns out, there are two broad categories of people that, um, that fall into the sort of sociopathic profile when they're young. And they evolve in completely different directions depending on the environment in which, to which they're exposed. If you, are, if you have sociopathic tendencies and you're exposed to an environment with you know, uh, a non-supportive family, low level of education, uh, and that sort of stuff, you're right likely to, in, in fact, become a violent psychopath. If you are the same kind of person, but exposed to a very supportive behavior, uh, a very supportive family environment, you know, you go to good schools and all that stuff, you become a CEO on Wall Street. So it's like, it's the same idea, but the outcome is very different, and it's, it's, it's a result of the environment. So takeaway being, if you're big boned, don't work in a, a hedge fund near a train street. track. <laughs> exactly. That's the takeaway. That's right. See, more practical advice from philosophy. What about something like, there's, you're probably familiar with Peter, Peter Singer's thought experiment. If you, uh, if you saw a child drowning in a pool and you could you know, jump in and save him and in the process ruin your $1,000 suit, you know, would you feel morally obligated to do it? And almost everyone says, yes, I would. I'm not going to let a kid die to you know, save a thousand bucks. And then he says, well, you know, analogously, there are children starving in, or you know, suffer, dying of malaria in other parts of the world, and you could easily save, save one of their lives by spending a thousand dollars. Do you feel morally obligated to do that? And then people are like, 
uh, but are hard pressed to come up with a morally relevant uh, distinction that would make them morally obligated in the case of the kid in front of them and not the kid you know, who's far away who they are never going to see and can't picture. And you know, it's pretty plausible that the reason we feel moral, like, morally obligated in the first place but not the second uh, case is that our, our moral intuitions evolved to, to deal with people who are right in front of us, to you know, respond to, to visible suffering um, and not to probabilistic lives saved, even though the actual impact is uh, you know, an expectation the same, or even better uh, in the case of, because lives are cheaper to save in the developing world. That's but, true. So, so my, my intellectual judgment tells me that <clears throat> I have just as much moral obligation even if I can't see the person in front of me, and yet my intuitive moral judgment tells me I don't feel you know, as morally compelled so, well, the, the problem in there is, um, first of all, so Piercinger starts from a, a utilitarian perspective, a consequentialist uh, way of looking at ethics. And from that perspective, what you just said does, in fact, follow. And by the way, Singer, who is a very controversial figure uh, because he advocates all sorts of unpalatable things, including euthanasia of severely disabled uh, young you know, children. He's also uh, okay with killing young children who aren't severely disabled. I mean, very young children. Very young children? Well, I mean, in that he's, he doesn't see any, like, like oh, any, they were born that's doesn't right. mean, you know. That's right. If you're okay with late-term abortion, then yeah, there's no yeah, reason sorry, why you on. shouldn't be. Yes. Anyway, he's, uh, he's uh, very controversial, as you might imagine, for those reasons. He also does, in fact, live up pretty much to his own expectations, because I think that the, the figure is something that he gives away 20 or 25% of his salaries, which is a pretty large percentage. So he tries to live up to his expectation. You, you'll find him occasionally writes uh, editorials in the New York Times, uh, try to convince people to sort of go in the same in the same direction but here's the problem so the explanation of the of why people most people don't do that it could be the one that you just put forth that there's a sort of disconnect between uh, the way we feel about certain situations and the moral decision making that we can do when we reflect about it but that is if you in fact start from a utilitarian perspective Utilitarianism is not the only type of, of ethical framework that you can adopt. There are it could several be just others. following a rule that when you see someone in need, you have to help them. And that's Correct. The and that's the, 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 the ontological one. Or you could come up, uh, uh, talk about a, uh, ethics of care, which usually comes out of feminist theory, or virtual ethics and communitarianism, uh, which uh, build in a, um, a different differential treatment for people that, that you are directly exposed to because those people, you have duties towards those people that you don't have toward uh, people on the other side of the planet. So you have you know, duties to your daughter, your son, or your, your parents, or your friends because they depend on you, because you interacted with them, because you developed a particular relationship. So it is true that if you abstract to the level of you know, numbers, uh, then these people over there are, you know, abstractly speaking, just as important, in, you know, from the universal perspective as these people over there. But the fact of the matter is that we do not have a universal perspective. We have a perspective that comes from uh, so socially interacting and uh, with people, people that depend on us for certain things. And so there are some ethical frameworks for which that is not a contradiction at all. That actually is part of the idea that you are in fact morally obligated to uh, have preference for people that depend on you, for people that know you, for people that have come to trust you and so on and so forth as opposed to a stranger. That doesn't mean the stranger is not important or it doesn't mean that the stranger should therefore be you know, left to die in the cold, but is that other pe things being equal, you actually uh, have a, a larger degree of moral responsibility toward other people, including yourself, because part of the idea, of course, is that uh, you know, you are a moral agent just like anybody else. And uh, it, although it is true, again, that from a universal perspective, the, the, you are 
just as important as anybody else from a point of view of yourself of course and the people that are close to you that's simply not the case uh, human relations don't work that way so it does depend on what kind of ethical framework and I'm not suggesting that one that there is a, um, a final answer there in fact that one of the chapters in the book it's called a uh, uh, handy dandy moral menu because uh, handy moral, moral menu, menu yeah uh, because it, it allows you to sort of to look at the major options on the table and say well actually this is the one that it, that for whatever reason feels more uh, uh, important or interesting or well articulated and so on but the fact is that there are frameworks and there's a bunch of frameworks that don't work there's a bunch of stuff in ethics that doesn't work and that's i think what ethics the way ethics works i think of ethics as a way of reasoning more than a set of answers you know, it'll, it allows you to think about what your assumptions are when it comes to moral decisions and what follows from those assumptions. And sometimes things that follow from those assumptions are not palatable, and at that point you could say, oh, maybe one of my assumptions was, in fact, mistaken, or I have to reject it, or I have to, you know, modify it. Mm -hmm. uh, we're almost out of time, I think, but um, is, there, is there any issue that you think... Um, science could do well to incorporate more philosophy into or vice versa? Well, it depends. Yeah, that's a good question. So it depends on what one means by incorporating. Um, so f philosophers are often accused of not paying attention to the facts. You know, there was just armchair philosophizing. It's the, it's the quintessential way in which you make fun of philosophers. Although, interestingly, nobody has pr a problem with an armchair mathematician, for instance. You know, nobody, nobody accuses mathematicians. Of, you know, you don't care about the facts. You just do math. Well, yes, that's what they do as a, as a profession. But philosophers actually do pay attention to the facts. They, you know, if, if you're, you cannot be a, a serious philosopher in the 21st century in whatever area of philosophy, uh, with the possible exception of, you know, uh, the history of philosophy, and not paying attention to what science is saying. Uh, if you're a, a metaphysician, you better pay attention to what physicists tell you about the, the nature of the world. Uh, if you are an ethicist, you better pay attention to what social psychologists and evolutionary biologists and neurobiologists tell you about it, because those things do build a general view of how the world works. And your thinking, your reflecting about the world has to therefore um, be based on the best understanding that we have of the world. And that best understanding comes from science. So in that sense, no philosopher, no serious philosopher would deny that facts and science are important. What philosophers, or at least many philosophers, do reject is that it is all a matter of facts. It, is all, it all reduces to empirical evidence. You know, this is my favorite villain, as you know, in this area, Sam Harris, who uh, a couple of years ago came up with this uh, moral landscape book where he, um, he, he suggested that science and not philosophy has, uh, is capable of producing answers to moral questions. But in fact, there is not a single example in the book of a new insight into moral philosophy that is provided by science, and that's because science deals with facts, but facts still need to be evaluated. You still need to, to reflect on those facts based on whatever values you have, and the values are not determined by the, the science. They're not determined by the fact. They may be altered or influenced by that, but they're not determined by them. The other way around, it works interestingly. So I, don't, I wouldn't suggest that a scientist, let's say a practicing scientist, um, should necessarily be you know, conver conversable, in conversing in, in philosophy or, or, or aware of what philosophers do. Scientists can do a lot of their work without any, any awareness whatsoever of what philosophers do. But if you're curious about what you're doing and how you're doing it, it might be from time to time a good idea to look at what philosophers of science, sociologists of science, and historians of science uh, come up with. Because that gives the scientist a sort of an outsider's view 
of its own discipline, right? And sometimes that may even help um, not, not answering actual questions, empirical questions, because again, that's the province of science, but thinking more broadly about why are you asking those questions? Why are you going in that, in that direction? And why are you going about it that way? Uh, as it turns out, there is an history out to it. There is a sociology to it, and there is a philosophy to it. So there are, for instance, um, one of the best examples currently of that is the debate in, sci- in physics about string theory and the status of string theory. Uh, it's the most uh, important advanced theoretical advance in fundamental physics for the last several decades, and yet it's in trouble, uh, as the, the, the title of a famous book by uh, Lise Molling, who is a physicist, uh, put it, The Trouble with Physics, uh, because for, we're looking at the first generation of physicists uh, since uh, the last, uh, over the last 150 years or so, where there has been no major theoretical breakthrough that has been accompanied by an empirical confirmation. In other words, string theory may be a uh, theoretical breakthrough, but there is no experiment that actually validates the theory or invalidates the theory. Uh, it cannot be done, at least not at the moment. And one of the questions is, well, why? Why is it we got what Smalling calls a lost generation of physicists? And his answer is, as a physicist, uh, is, well, that's because physicists, uh, the, the fundamental physics community is not paying attention to its own sociology and philosophy and history. He claims that what has happened is the physicists over the 20th century have moved away from an awareness of issues in epistemology and issues which are in, in, in basic um, you know, philosophy of science. Earlier physicists were very much aware of those issues. Einstein, Bohr, and, and that, that group was very much uh, aware of philosophy of science. Uh, modern physicists moved away from it. They're unaware of sociology of science, which shows that, in fact, the fundamental physics uh, community is very small. And when a community of experts is very small, they tend to, that it's easy to bias that community's judgment uh, one way or another without any particularly objective reason for why that should be that bias. So for instance, if, if it, it became very popular to, be, to work on, on string theory when it came out because it was uh, uh, thought to be very, uh, a, no- a very novel way of looking at things, that was in the mid-80s. So there was a period where you really couldn't get a job unless you were working in fundamental physics, unless you were working on string theory, if you got a job, or you couldn't be a graduate student unless you were working in, fundam- in, in string theory, then those people got on got jobs. They became, uh, you know, the kind of people that decide which papers get published in referee journals or which grants get funded in, on what research. And if the entire community becomes enmeshed in that way of thinking, then of course you have that only string theorists are funded, hired, and so on and so forth. And that, according to Smalling, who I, re- I repeat, it's a physicist, is a physicist, not a philosopher. Uh, that is one of the reasons why we're in this impasse, because there are, in fact, alternative ways of looking at things. There, are, there, there have been uh, alternative proposals out there, but very few people are working on it because the community is so small that it's got bias. Now, presumably, this is not going to last forever, uh, because eventually physicists themselves will recognize that, okay, this is really not working, let's try something else. I mean, they're not masochists. But Smolin's point is that it's an unawareness of the sociology history and, uh, and philosophy of physics that has led to, in part to this, to this uh, situation, and perhaps more awareness of that might have avoided, you know, sort of wasting an entire generation. The history comes in because one of the major arguments in favor of string theory is that it must be true because it's so simple and beautiful. Right? It's an argument that you often hear from uh, uh, physicists who apparently don't realize that beauty and simplicity are not empirical concepts. 
you can't test for beauty and simplicity, right? Which is, they're aesthetic concepts. Uh, so in other words, they're making they're bringing in a pretty big philosophical baggage into this of an aesthetic preference. But regardless of that, Smolin says actually historians of physics will show you very clearly and very easily that time and again throughout the 20th century, physicists preferred a particular theory because it was on those grounds, and then that theory turned out to be wrong empirically. I feel like you could test for beauty. Just set up like a, a physics theories hot or not.com and just put the theories up there and you've got all this data. Right, but all you test is for people's opinions about beauty, not, well, not whether the, the universe is somehow supposed to be you know, regulated by beautiful laws, whatever. Oh, that well, means. you want to test for truth? That's yeah, the exactly. I'm That's right. For beauty. Exactly. Um, I think we are all out of time, so um, I'm going to wrap this up, but with the, the closing. Uh, exhortation to all of our listeners to check out Answers for Aristotle. Um, I would highly recommend it to anyone who likes uh, the podcast. Thank you. Um, so just, I think we'll just have you like shout out your question, then I will repeat it into the mic so that our listeners later on can hear it. Sir? See, I, 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 I did I not disappoint you. Yes. <laughs> and, I, and I'm not disappointed. Now, I know that Sam Harris is wrong, and I know that his reasoning is wrong, mm-hmm. but how can he be so wrong? Ah. That's, did you plant him? No. Nope. <laughs> you got someone to ask, how can Sam Harris be so wrong? All right. What's going on? What's going on here? Right. All right. So the question was, Massimo, how can Sam Harris be as wrong as he is, that wrong, <laughs> wrong man? <laughs> Uh, first of all, I'll ask him in, uh, in a few days because we, we're both going to a workshop on, on the implications of philosophical naturalism, and that's going to be a fun one. Uh, you know, uh, Jerry Cohen is going to be there, Richard Dawkins, Dan Dennett, all sorts of interesting people to disagree with. So, uh, Sam Harris, why is he so wrong? <laughs> For a variety of reasons, one of which is that he actually has two legitimate targets in his book. If you, if you read the, the introduction of the book or the very first part of the first chapter, he tells you what, what his targets are. And his targets are a religious way of thinking about morality, which he thinks are misguided because he thinks that religion has nothing to say about morality, or worse, it, it actually teaches the wrong sort of type of morality. And on, at the opposite end of the, of the spectrum, he, his second target is moral relativism. So this idea that there is no right and wrong, that, that, that you know, your opinion is, is just as good as mine, and that uh, if, if a society engages, let's say, in genital mutilation of of young girls, nah, well, that's you know that their prerogative. It's the same difference that doing it or not doing it is the same difference between liking dark chocolate or or, or, or milk chocolate. Um, and of course, there, as you all know, I I, sh- I hope that the answer is dark chocolate. Clearly, now, so those are targets that are legitimate. I I do I do agree with him that moral relativism is pernicious and that religious-based morality is pernicious. In the book, the last chapter, um, the last three chapters are devoted to, to religion and morality. And in particular, the last one deals with the Eutyphro's dilemma, which is this classic dialogue by Plato, where Socrates at some point basically asks the fundamental question to his, uh, uh, to his interlocutor, uh, Eutyphro. And Socrates says, you know, so, okay, you're telling me that you know what is right because you know what the, what the gods want. But ask, answer this question. Is something right because the gods say it is right? Or is something right, or the gods say that something is right because it is right? And, you know, Eutypho thinks about it, and he says, I smell some kind of trap from, Aristotle, from Socrates, and says, nah, clearly the first one, you know, something is right because the gods say is right. And, of course, that cannot be the case, because if that's the case, then morality becomes a matter of, you know, of, of might makes right. You know, you're doing it because the gods tell you to do it, because otherwise they're going to incinerate you. 
Um, but, you know, they could decide that genocide is right or that rape is right or whatever, and what are you going to do then? Then you throw, these are not the examples that Socrates brings up, by the way, I'm paraphrasing. Um, and Eutyphus says, okay, yeah, you're right, that's, that's clearly not the good answer, so it, it, the case is then if the gods say that something is right because it is right, in which case, of course, you don't need the middle man or the middle god to tell you, right? You, don't, you, you can figure out the thing on, on your own, which the result of which, the end of the end of story is, you do not, even if gods exist, they have nothing to say about morality to us. We can figure out our way out. Now, notice that I just made a philosophical argument Okay. And, and Aris seems to be entirely unaware of the fact that there is a large number of philosophers who would agree with him that, that religious-based morality and, and uh, relativism are, in fact, morally bankrupt, and they would be able to provide very good reasons for why that is the case. Instead, Harris in, chooses to ignore that, and in, in a famous or infamous footnote to the first chapter, he says that he's not going to engage the philosophical literature because he thinks that terms like utilitarianism and deontology increase the boredom of the universe. <laughs> that is not an argument, my friend. This is, that is anti-intellectualism in, in its purest form. Uh, you know, imagine if, if I were writing a book about how the brain works, and I said, but I'm not going to engage with the cognitive science literature because I think that terms like fMRI and frontal lobes increase the boredom of the universe. I mean, nobody would take me seriously. So the real uh, question is not why Sam Harris goes that way. He, he does have those two targets and he thinks he can come up with a better answer. The real, re the real question is why is, is, is his answer is so popular? Uh, why is it so many people are so ready to agree that, yeah, philosophy has nothing to do with morality, it's all about science? And I don't have a particularly good answer to that one. Uh, no, no, sir. Um, so you, you just used the word uh, relativism, mm. and I'm, I'm curious how you're defining it uh, for, purposes of, uh, uh, for purposes of your last comment. Do you want to repeat the question? Uh, the question was, Massimo used the word relativism in his previous answer. Um, could he please define what he means by relativism? Yeah, so relativism is this idea that um, has been put forth in, actually not even originally in moral philosophy, but in, uh, in cultural anthropology. Uh, that, you know, there is, no, there is no objective way in which you can actually judge whether a particular practice within a particular society is right or wrong. If they do it, they do it, but there's no, no reason, no grounded reason why you come in from the outside and can say, oh, no, no, genital mutilation of women is clearly, young women is clearly wrong. Uh, because we come equipped with the same sort of some kind of cultural baggage, baggage that it's different from theirs, and, you know, who am I to say? Now, that's a simple version of it. Now, that did spill over... Um, in discussions about moral relativism, which is, you know, again, this idea that therefore there's no grounding for a moral judgment other than it's, you know, it's my opinion, it's my feeling, it's my gut reaction, it's whatever, whatever it is, but there's no rational reason uh, to say that something is actually morally correct or incorrect. Um, now, to some extent, that's a caricature because very few people actually that I know of subscribe to that version of moral relativism. Uh, more, more nuanced versions are simply, you know, cautionary. Like, you know, be careful before you make a judgment about that practice being wrong because as it turns out, you know, you may not have good reasons for it. You may not understand that culture well enough. You may not have all the information. And by the way, the same can be applied to some of the stuff that you do in your own, in your own culture and you may be unaware of it. So as a cautionary tale, I think that's reasonable enough. But when it's 
pushed to the point, sort of the extreme point that Sam Harris is, re is reacting to, I do think it's, it's, it's nonsense, and in fact, it's pernicious nonsense. That, by the way, I should say, it's not because I am, uh, I think that moral truths are out there uh, in a universal sense. Uh, morality is relevant it, it, to uh, social beings of a particular type. Uh, and moral reactions, moral feelings evolved in those, in that particular species, in response to, the, to particular, um, you know, environments, the social environments that we uh, found ourselves with. So, uh, if you know, the, if a Martian who who belongs to a non-social species came on came on Earth, I think it would be a really difficult to explain what we mean by right or wrong and, and that sort of stuff. That said, I, I said during the main the main um, segment of the podcast that I think of of ethics as a way of reasoning, not as a set of answers. So it's, it's about, I pretty much think of it as, as logic applied to what we think, what, what are moral question, questions of well-being or flourishing for human beings, right? So if we agree, for instance, that you know, a, a good starting axiom is other things being equal, we should maximize, maximize individual people's ability to flourish or individual's well-being, then what, what follows from that? Uh, how are we going to do that? The answer to that is in partly, partly logical, so it partly deals with, with philosophy, and partly empirical. You know, what is it empirically that makes human beings uh, flourish in a certain way? And that, that all belongs to science, social science in particular. I will just add the addendum that there is another alternative to the first option of thinking that there is one moral truth and the second option of not caring about morality at all, which is how moral relativism is usually portrayed. Um, you can think there's no moral truth and yet have very strong preferences that people not you know, mutilate their daughters um, and, and take really... You know, decisive actions to try to prevent things like that from happening without thinking that that is the objectively correct moral position. Yes, you can do that. It's uh, a weaker position, but you can do that. Next question. Uh, you brought up the question of uh, why science works, and you gave an example of the Society of Science in the 20th century. So what is the explanation for, say, Newtonian physics working, or how did Newton get it working? You were mostly working by himself. So the question was, Massimo described science as this collective, collaborative endeavor. Um, however, we have examples like Newton, who made amazing scientific strides, essentially working on his own. Massimo, how would you explain that? Yeah, that's an interesting question. So, so there's two answers to that. First of all, it, it's only partly true that Newton was working on his own, right? I mean, even, even, even in the uh, 17th and 18th centuries, there was already a network. You know, ever since Galileo, let's say, the time of Bacon and Galileo, and therefore later Newton, there was already a academic um, you know, not in this modern sense of academy, but there was a group of people that were interacting. Uh, Newton, I think, was in fact the, the, one of the founders of the Royal Society, which means that he, he was aware of the fact that you needed this kind of sort of peer uh, uh, evaluation and peer uh, feedback. So that part of the question, part of the answer is, well, it's not entirely true that he was working on his own. The other part of the answer is, yes, and Newton, in fact, wasted a lot of time doing, doing stuff that is of no value whatsoever. I mean, he actually spent more time on alchemy and biblical criticism than uh, exegesis than he did on physics. Now, why do we know, most of us don't know that to that, well, because that sort of stuff, it's crap and went off the, you know, the wrong way and it, we sort of ignore it. Uh, we, we only kept the good stuff that Newton did. Uh, one could argue that if, if Newton had been subjected to more peer review and more peer pressure, he might not have wasted that much time uh, you know, doing, al doing alchemy. Uh, it turns out, however, that sort of temperamentally, Newton was very 
very much not yes he was very temperamental he was very much not into the business of listening to what other people used to say you know this is famous one of the reasons he's famous is this uh, uh, phrase that sounds very magnanimous and very modest um, uh, you know we if we can see further it is because we are on, you know we are on the shoulders of giants as it turns out that was actually a dig to a colleague who was short in stature <gasps> so kidding. the guy was a nasty son of a bitch he's <laughs> like you know um, so, yeah. <laughs> and of course, he went after, uh, was it Leibniz, I think, because they both discovered uh, differential calculus, right? And Newton was nasty for all of his career. He had um, uh, his own papers reviewed by his own friends and Leibniz papers reviewed by you know, nasty people. And he went after Leibniz even after Leibniz died. He just wouldn't let it go. And so it was like, a, you know, an interesting psychology of science there. <laughs> Any more questions? Ma'am. <laughs> yeah. That's a good question. Right. So the question was, why answers for Aristotle? Why not answers for someone else? So, uh, there's two reasons that for that. One is a good one, one is not so good. Let me start with the not so good one. This was not my title. Uh, the, the one of, so the original title of the book was The Intelligent Person's Guide to the Meaning of Life. Uh, which, of course, was a take on the Idiot's Guide to... Uh, it's a series of book, books, as you know, that it's very popular, apparently, because there's a lot of idiots, or at least a lot of self-professed idiots. Um, so that was the original title. The publishers didn't go for it, and we went back and forth, and I, I discovered, with, to, to my chagrin, that I do not have in my contract power to override the publishers. The publishers are bound to listen to what I have to say, but not to go with what I have to say. Uh, that said, the answer, the answers for Aristotle um, was, in fact, that does have a, a, a logic. Aristotle is by far, if you look at the book, uh, Aristotle is by far the figure among scientists or philosophers the most cited, most quoted throughout that. There's, almost, there's no chapter in which Aristotle doesn't appear um, in one way or another. And the title, therefore, refers to, uh, if you, even if you look at the cover, which I actually think it's beautifully done uh, by the, the basic books artist, uh, it, it, it has a young guy who is supposed to be Aristotle on one hand sort of pondering things in the philosophy, and on the other hand, there is this beautiful shell of an of a marine organism that Aristotle studied, right? So there's the science. Aristotle was, in fact, if not the first, certainly one of the, one of the first and, one of, and the most prominent ancient uh, thinker who understood that you have to do both uh, what we today consider philosophy and science, or philosophy and natural philosophy, as it used to be, they used to be called, right? That, that it's important to, to write and think about, let's say, ethics, or metaphysics, but it's also important to do research. He actually did field work in, in the island of Lesbo, uh, for instance, in biology. Spent you know summers there, so it's important to do to actually do deal with the facts. Now he got some of the facts wrong. In fact, well, the entire physics of Aristotle is wrong. But you know you had to start somewhere, <laughs> and and uh, it was remarkable that he had the right idea that to combine what we today call science and philosophy uh, to come up with with the best answers we can. And in fact, I'm not unhappy, of course, the fact that he was wrong because part of the point of the book is that these are the best answers; they're not the true answers, 
Right? These are the best advice you can get. It's, it's not the true advice. It's revisable. If the science or the philosopher changes, the philosopher changes just as much as the science, usually at a slower pace. You know, philosophy, it's, one of the things that is wonderful about having moved from uh, professional science to professional philosophy is that uh, in professional science, uh, you publish a paper now and somebody's going to respond to it and criticize it within you know, weeks and then you're going to respond after, weeks after that. In, in philosophy, things are much more relaxed. You know, you see today a paper that is responding to a paper published in 1979. The guy's probably dead. But it's like, you know, slowly but surely, we're going to get there. And it's like, there's progress, but it's, uh, it takes millennia. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a long, long view of things. Interesting. I always assumed that you picked Aristotle because you couldn't think of any other philosophers whose name began with A. Ah. And it worked, <laughs> worked so well. Yes, of course, that was the original reason. <laughs> no, no, I don't. Um, I think we have time for one more question. Mitch? Rephrase that. I have, a, I have a comment about that. Yeah. So the the comment was that it's uh, in reference to the question about Newton and uh, scientists working alone. Um, that perhaps science has just gotten harder over time as we've you know solved the easier questions, and so it's more necessary to be among a community of other scientists. Right. Newton well, wouldn't like that assessment of you know he went for the low hanging fruits. Uh, of course, he did. So low go hanging, for, it fell to the ground. It fell on the ground. He's head, right. By the way, that one also the story of uh, of the apple falling on Newton's head that actually is made up. How many more lovely? Not only that, but he made it up. Ruin for me. He made it up in a letter to a friend to make you know put a sort of a more dramatic setting to his uh, to the development of his ideas. So. Next, you're going to tell me Washington didn't chop down a cherry tree and then tell the truth about it. <laughs> I will not tell you didn't? that. <laughs> of course not. Anyway, so here's how here's how um, now. So Newton would not be happy with that kind of transition, but I think you're right. Uh, that is, you know, you can start look at Galileo, right? So the guy discovered, invented essentially the telescope. I and mean, it had been invented before, but he was the one that perfected, perfected the instrument to the point that it was useful for astronomical observations. And literally anywhere he pointed the damn thing, he discovered new things. Well, you can't do that now. I mean, you know, if you, even if you have a really, really serious, seriously costly large telescope, you're probably going to end up pointing, the, the, pointing it somewhere where people already know that there is stuff, right? So... Yes, that is the problem with science being a progressive, ex uh, it's not a problem, but <laughs> that is the, the outcome or the, the, the implication of science being a progressive enterprise, right? Things become more costly, more difficult, and, and, and uh, progress uh, becomes more slow. I think the same, interestingly, applies to philosophy. Because, you know, early on, when people started thinking about, you know, logic, logic, nobody thought about logic before, so let me hear, the, the principle of non-contradiction, okay, uh, as it turns out, it took you know, more than 2,000 years to make significant advances over Aristotelian logic. But then, you know, between the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century, was this explosion of different ways of doing logic. And, you know, uh, uh, and, and now we have a profession, a highly sophisticated profession, where I challenge anybody who, does, who is not a professional logician to actually get past the first half a page of a technical paper in logic. You're just not going to get anything because there's a huge amount of background knowledge that is necessary. So this is true, I think, of all academic fields that make progress. Um, 
if there is an academic field that does not make progress, you probably recognize it because anybody can come in and invent something completely new and people say, wow, that is totally new. And nobody thought about that before. But I, I'd be, I think you'd be hard-pressed uh, hard, uh, into finding that kind of example. All right, I think we're going to wrap up. Um, this concludes another episode of Rationally Speaking. Join us next time for more explorations on the borderlands between reason and nonsense. The Rationally Speaking podcast is presented by New York City Skeptics. For program notes, links, and to get involved in an online conversation about this and other episodes, please visit rationallyspeakingpodcast.org. This podcast is produced by Benny Pollock and recorded in the heart of Greenwich Village, New York. Our theme, Truth, by Todd Rundgren, is used by permission. Thank you for listening.